This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The elderly population is expected to double by 2030. With this rapid growth of this segment of the population, we'll see an increased amount of chronic disease, including dementia. Dementia is becoming more common because the population is aging. The resulting decline in memory and loss of other cognitive functions will have a major impact on the individual patients, their families, and the healthcare system. Today we're joined by Dr. Richard Caselli, a Mayo Clinic neurology consultant. Dr. Caselli's specialties include behavioral neurology, including Alzheimer's, dementia, and other related disorders. He's also involved in Alzheimer research. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. My pleasure. Let's start by talking about the normal changes of aging. Um, I assume these occur because when I tried taking piano lessons with the seven-year-old, that seven-year-old was learning it a lot faster than I was. <laughs> yes, that's a common experience. Um, as we age, of course, our, our brain and the rest of our nervous system ages as well. On the cognitive realm, uh, we are less able to multitask. We don't think quite as quickly. Of course, just like you hear from, heard from your parents, our memory is not as good as it used to be. We may be a little bit slower coming up with names. <clears throat> and if anybody likes to play softball and play the outfield, you'll find that that fly ball often goes over your head uh, a lot more readily than it used to. So all of these things, from visual-spatial to the problem-solving, executive, language, memory, all of these things decline a little bit as we get older. So do I need to be worried about my colleagues when I see them wandering around our parking ramp looking for their car in the evening, or is that accepted? Well, knowing, knowing the complexity of parking in Rochester, uh, I don't think that's a very sensitive, uh, a very specific sign, but really what we're looking for is a change in a person's forgetfulness. So if a person is you know, normally parking in a certain area, but for whatever reason they're looking on a completely wrong level or in the completely wrong parking garage, you know, that might be a little bit of a red flag. Um, but again, it, you really have to put any one error in the context of where it's occurring. And it's not one error that's usually the problem. It's, it's, it's a pattern of errors. So how do these accepted changes in aging compare with uh, mild cognitive impairment or dementia? Mild cognitive impairment and dementia are really two different points or ranges on a spectrum. So normal aging, as we were saying earlier, people start to lose a little bit of their uh, sharpness, if you will, in terms of memory and, and, and multitasking. In people who, are on, who develop mild cognitive impairment and dementia, there's an underlying disease process that's driving it that's more than just normal aging. The most common cause, of course, is Alzheimer's disease, although it's not the only cause. In the earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease, uh, or the first symptomatic stage that we would call mild cognitive impairment, people have memory difficulties or related problems that exceed what we would normally expect to see just with aging. And as the disease continues to progress and they become more disabled by this and can no longer function independently, that's when we're using the term dementia. So just like we were saying earlier, what we tend to see is a change in the pattern. You don't just occasionally forget where you put your keys or where you parked your car, 
but it's happening more and more often. And, and for things that are surprising, like repeating the same question every 10 minutes uh, or forgetting an important uh, event that we, you normally would never forget. Um, and, and people who know you can tell there's a difference often before the patient themselves really sort of detects that, that there's something actually wrong. Well, you mentioned Alzheimer's disease, and I think most healthcare providers are quite familiar with that syndrome. But there are other types of dementia that we may not see as often. Can you review some of those? Sure. Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative brain disease. There are other degenerative brain diseases as well. One of the ones that, while not as common as Alzheimer's, is still one that many physicians are going to run into is dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, this is sort of an overlap, if you will, between Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Um, there are several cardinal symptoms to it. If a person does have Parkinsonian symptoms, that, that can be a giveaway. There can be associated visual hallucinations, a type of sleep disorder called REM sleep behavior disorder where people act out their dreams. And the pattern of cognition that changes is a little different than in garden variety Alzheimer's disease in that patients tend to be a little slower in their thinking, tend to have a bit more in the way of visuospatial problems, and of course, that those are some of the things that we look for to make that diagnosis. Another one is frontotemporal degeneration or frontotemporal lobar degeneration. This is really a family of diseases which affect, as the name implies, areas of the frontal lobe and temporal lobes. Now, that's an awful big expanse of our brain, and, of course, it depends exactly what parts of the frontal lobes and what parts of the temporal lobes are affected. One subtype affects parts of the frontotemporal region that's involved with language and causes a syndrome called primary progressive aphasia. Uh, another type affects a part of the temporal lobes that can cause difficulty coming up with names or anomia, something called semantic dementia, or if it's on the the non-language side of the brain, typically the right side of the brain, can cause difficulty recognizing familiar faces, uh, a syndrome known as prosopagnosia. And then another subtype, which affects primarily the frontal lobes, can cause just progressive behavioral difficulties in which a patient can become very apathetic, very amotivational, maybe a little disinhibited, and that's called behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. Finally, uh, the more common forms, and of course there are more than just this, but of the more common forms, there's vascular cognitive impairment or vascular dementia. And, you know, in the old days, we used to regard this as sort of a stepwise stuttering problem that could correspond to a series of symptomatic strokes. And while that does occur, that actually accounts for a minority of the vascular cases. The majority of them really have very much of a degenerative appearance in terms of being just more of a gradually progressive problem. Um, tend, there tend to be a number of vascular risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, high cholesterol. Brain scans like an MRI scan might show a lot of small vessel type abnormalities, all those little white spots that people talk about on MRI scans, maybe even a couple of lacunar infarctions. And these people will come in almost looking slightly Parkinsonian in the sense that they'll be kind of slow, they, they'll, they'll kind of shuffle, they'll be a little unsteady, but they won't have that characteristic rest tremor of Parkinson's disease. Um, and they are forgetful, they're slow in their thinking, um, and like I said, you, you can sometimes find clues in their medical background and on their MRI scan as to what that is. So among the non-Alzheimer's dementias, really the most common ones would be dementia with Lewy bodies, frontotemporal lobar degeneration and its subtypes, 
and then vascular cognitive impairment. Is it important for us to know which type of dementia patients have? Yes and no. If we're dealing with um, if we're dealing with just the conditions that I mentioned, of course, the most single most important thing we can do for a patient is to identify something that we can fix. And so what is important is to know what you're dealing with, and because once you know what you're dealing with, you know what you're not dealing with. Because there are other conditions like, you know, large frontal lobe meningiomas, autoimmune encephalopathy, a number of metabolic disturbances, polypharmacy, and so on, that also can impair cognition. And to the unwary might, you know, superficially resemble dementia. And it would be a crime, really, to miss something that we could literally cure. On the other hand, if you sort of narrowed it down to a degenerative brain disease, is it really critical to say today, well, this is an early stage of Alzheimer's or this is an early stage of dementia Lewy bodies? It isn't really critical in the sense that we really can't make either one of them go away, and the management of all of these things tends to be more symptomatic. So you're really treating the symptoms, and you determine what those symptoms are, and there's overlap between them. I suppose one could make an argument that there's a bit of a difference when you're talking about vascular cognitive impairment, because we certainly do have things we can do to control vascular risk factors, which arguably could be disease-modifying for people developing that problem. Where it also can make a difference is if a person is going to enroll in a clinical trial, then we want to be very careful about making sure that the people enrolled in a clinical trial with a, a drug that's supposed to target a specific pathology actually has that specific pathology. So that, that's where it could also make a difference. Do these specific types of dementia exist in their peer states, or is there overlap between, say, Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia? That's an excellent question. The older we get, the more we're dealing with mixed pathologies. Alzheimer's remains the most common of all of these pathologies, but there's a vast difference between a person dying at age 89, let's say, and a person dying at age 69. The 89-year-old, almost more than half the time, probably about 60% or more of the time, is going to have additional pathologies, including Parkinson's pathology, vascular pathology, and some other things as well. The person with the younger onset who, who succumbs to the disease at, at a much earlier age is much more likely to have a pure form of that problem, although there can be mixed cases even in, in younger patients. All right, let's talk about the evaluation of a patient now that we suspect might have significant cognitive impairment. Um, primary care health providers are comfortable and are familiar with uh, mental status exams. How effective are they in uh, screening for uh, cognitive impairment? Well, of course, anything is better than nothing. And so taking the time to do any type of cognitive assessment is definitely a virtue. Um, it really depends upon the individual you're testing. If it's, you know, an ordinary type of person who's coming in with the usual types of complaints, going through a mental status exam may be sufficient to identify, yes, you do seem to be having troubles with your memory, your cognition, and, and go from there. Of course, we also deal with some very high-functioning members of our society, you know, people with very advanced educational degrees and in very challenging occupations who may come in telling us, you know, I'm having more trouble on the job and um, I don't feel like I can function quite the way that I did. Nobody said anything to me yet, but I can tell there's something wrong. You know, that kind of a scenario 
the mental status exam may not be sufficient, and that might require you know, more in-depth neuropsychological testing to really identify, yes, indeed, there's a problem. So those are the, the more extensive psychometric tests are more sensitive in picking up uh, early cognitive changes? Yes, yes. Okay. Is there a genetic component to some of these conditions? There is, there is. Now, many of us, of course, who graduated from high school a long time ago, when we learned about genetics, we were really dealing with Mendelian genetics, autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive, sex links, traits. What we've learned in the you know, 30, 40, 50 years since then is that genetics is a lot more complicated. And there are genetic risk factors that have, let's say, some, some impact features of, of a dominant trait but are not completely penetrant. So, for example, the ApoE4 allele, which is present in about 20 to 25 percent of the U.S. population, increases our risk for developing Alzheimer's pretty substantially. One copy of that gene increases our risk 300 to 400 percent. Um, and two copies of that gene probably increase our risk, you know, tenfold. Uh, that's not to say everybody who has that gene goes on to develop Alzheimer's. Many don't but it nonetheless is a significant risk factor. On the other hand, there's also about oh, 20 other risk factors that have been identified that have much weaker effects that might increase our risk 10 to 30%. And many of us are walking around with many of those particular variants. And it's, it's the exception, not the rule, that somebody actually succumbs to one of those weaker variants. But it, it does happen. Then there are the very rare cases of the young-onset dementias that have an autosomal dominant sounding uh, family history that can be related to one of the, to, to autosomal dominant mutations in one of three different genes, all of which are important for uh, coding for either coding or processing the amyloid precursor protein, which leads to that famous protein that builds up in the brain in Alzheimer's, which we call amyloid, but it's is a, actually a fragment called a beta peptide. Come to Mayo Clinic in lovely Rochester, Minnesota for the geriatric update for the primary care providers held November 14th of 2019. Catch all the latest updates and innovative practice models for evaluating, managing, and caring for your geriatric patients. Registration for this popular course fills up quickly. Visit ce.mayo.edu for more information. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. So when we have a patient that we suspect has dementia, do they need a head imaging study? And if so, is it CT, MRI? And what are we actually looking for? The short answer is yes. Um, anybody who has what we suspect to be a brain disease of any type, I believe, deserves to have their brain imaged. Because as, as confident as you may be that, well, this is you know, Alzheimer's or this is mild cognitive impairment, whatever you're thinking, there, there's always that rare possibility that there might be something potentially reversible, a chronic subdural hematoma, uh, a benign tumor in just the wrong location, or if not reversible, another etiology that you might want to work up differently, like a strategically placed stroke, for example. 
And keep in mind that if a person does have an irreversible degenerative brain disease like Alzheimer's with a quote-unquote negative MRI scan, you know, they're eventually going to be develop dementia, and, and if they don't die from something else, die from Alzheimer's disease. Now, it seems to me that as a person is declining along the route of that disease, it, it, it's helpful for patient, for the family, for the physician taking care of them, to have the confidence that they know they've been worked up thoroughly, they know what it is, they know what it isn't, and, and in that way, you know, I think it's helpful. In terms of CT or MRI, if a person can't have an MRI, either because they have a pacemaker or some other reason, we certainly settle for a CT, but MRI scans are so widely available now, and they do give us additional information that we generally prefer an, an, an MRI scan. And when I speak of additional information, without even resorting to some of the rare and esoteric things, there are a couple of things we would see on an MRI scan that we would miss on a, on a CT scan. One would be all that kind of those little white spots, that small vessel cerebrovascular disease, which is really not very well shown on a CT scan, but that could have implications for cause. A second uh, thing on gradient echo sequences or some other more current sequences now we can see evidence of hemosiderin deposition that might be a clue to underlying amyloid angiopathy, which is associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, that's also not something that a CT scan uh, is going to show us. And then finally, if somebody had a small but recent infarct, um, we can see on diffusion-weighted images uh, evidence of that small recent infarct on an MRI scan that we, again, would probably miss on a CT scan. How about PET scans? Are they uh, useful for the healthcare provider? Are they more research tools? Currently, in general, they're more research tools, but there are some exceptions to that. Um, some patients who come in at a very young age, let's say you're dealing with a 52-year-old who comes in, they're working, they're still, they're still getting by, but they feel there's something wrong. You examine them and you believe, yeah, you know, I think there really is something wrong here they're probably going to be disabled by that problem. And, you know, a, a negative MRI scan is probably not sufficient support for their disability claim. Um, also, if you're concerned that a person is coming in with an early stage of behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, their earliest symptoms might not be as much cognitive as behavioral. They come in, there's been a change in personality, uh, their spouse is saying, you know, they're, 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 there's something wrong with them. You know, you do your memory testing. They seem to pass. You're not sure, but they're acting a little funny. And you get an MRI scan. doesn't really show a whole heck of a lot. It might show a little atrophy in the frontal lobe area, but maybe not enough that it's definitive, whereas a PET scan can really be, you know, definitive in showing, you know, reduced metabolism in that part of the brain. Of course, when we speak of PET scans these days, we really have to define what type of PET scan we're talking about, and that's really defined by the radio ligand that we give somebody. The typical M uh, PET scan that's used for clinical purposes is a fluorodeoxyglucose or FDG PET scan. But in the research circles, there are now molecular imaging type PET scans that can image amyloid and now even tau. Neither of these are, are reimbursed by insurers, so they're not generally obtained clinically Possibly that might change in the future, but as of today, that's still true. But they're increasingly utilized in uh, therapeutic drug trials from, in, from industry to ensure that patients who are enrolled in these expensive trials actually have either amyloid or tau 
uh, that define biologically Alzheimer's disease and show that a patient enrolled has the therapeutic target for the, the drug. Mm-hmm. What other tests should we be ordering? Well, the f- most important thing really is knowing a person's medical background. Do they have a history of cancer? Do they have a history of cardiovascular disease, diabetes? What medications are they on? There are some routine labs that we get in everybody. So in addition to brain imaging, we'll get you know blood counts, uh, metabolic chemistry panel, thyroid function of some type, vitamin B12 level. I would say those are the most basic things. Um, in extenuating circumstances, depending on is it an excessively rapid course, is there an altered level of consciousness, are there other atypical features, we might consider an EEG or a spinal fluid examination or some other tests as well. But th- those would be the basics. Okay. Can you briefly review the treatment options uh, that we have available? Sure. There, there are six categories of things that I generally go through with my patients. And we don't have equally good therapies in all of these areas, but these are the things that we should be thinking about. And if we're not, I I promise you the patients are. The first category is prevention. Is there anything we can do to prevent this from getting worse? And as we were discussing earlier, we generally do not have any disease-modifying therapies unless we're talking about controlling cardiovascular risk factors. The second category uh, are intellectual decline, and that's where we have four FDA-approved drugs, three of which are the cholinesterase inhibitors, one of which is memantine, which is a partial NMDA receptor antagonist. The third category are behavioral problems, which a subset of patients have, but that subset can really be uh, quite problematic to manage. And those sorts of things include agitation, psychosis, depression, anxiety, which are managed you know, differently than just by giving somebody a cholinesterase inhibitor, for example. The fourth category involves sleep disorders. Um, Some patients have a very characteristic type of sleep disorder called REM sleep behavior disorder that we were talking about earlier that characterizes things in the Parkinson's family, like dementia with Lewy bodies. And these are people who act out their dreams, which if it's all they're doing is twitching a little bit is no big deal, but if they're actually throwing punches or falling out of bed or getting hurt, um, then there's something we need to do to control that. The fifth category are some of the commonly associated things that go along with dementia, Parkinsonism, incontinence, trouble swallowing, and managing these things, of course, you know, takes different kinds of therapies. And then finally, during the course of following a patient with dementia, there are going to be the unexpected turns, either excessively rapid progression, symptoms we didn't expect. These are the sorts of things that require us to kind of you know, look anew at what's going on. Sometimes it could be as simple as a urinary tract infection that's caused a a delirium on top of the dementia. And sometimes it can be something, you know, a little bit more subtle, like a small stroke on top of somebody who's got a degenerative brain disease like Alzheimer's. So the typical patient with, let's say, mild dementia related to Alzheimer's disease and no behavioral problems will probably be putting on a cholinesterase inhibitor like donepezil or rivastigmine or galantamine. Um, and, you know, just sort of keeping an eye on them and, and then otherwise counseling them on lifestyle changes like driving and living alone, power of attorney, things like that. I'm afraid I know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, do you see anything on the horizon that will either give us highly effective treatment or uh, some reversibility of these diseases? Yeah, you know, I wish you'd asked me that question a couple of weeks ago because, as you're probably aware, within the past week, we the field suffered another major setback. Um, 
uh, one of those pharmaceutical companies that had a drug that was thought to be very promising uh, terminated its phase three trial because of inefficacy uh, of, of the treatment. So far, the short answer to your question is no. Um, the longer answer is most of the therapies that have been tried for disease modification are aimed at either preventing the production of A-beta peptide or helping our body's immune system to eliminate it from, from our brains. And there have been progress there has been progress made in developing drugs that can achieve those goals. But the problem has been that even when you get the amyloid out of the brain, it doesn't seem to stop the progression of the disease. So it's now not clear to the field whether this is a strategy that's going to work, either because we're intervening too late or because it's just the wrong target. Um, so at the moment, I think there's a lot of confusion and, and, and uncertainty in the field. Okay. Finally, one more question. Are you aware of any good resources available uh, on the Internet that uh, we can recommend to our patients or families who are caring for dementia patients? Absolutely. Actually, the Alzheimer's Association has an excellent website, alz.org. Um, they have uh, parts of their site specifically aimed at caregivers. Uh, there are parts of their site that discuss clinical trials. Um, then there are parts of the site that are aimed at, at scientists and physicians and investigators. There's also the clinicaltrials.gov, uh, which is by the uh, National Institute of Health and Federal Government that lists all the clinical trials for all diseases that are out there, including dementia. Um, and then, of course, there are major health centers like Mayo Clinic uh, that have our own websites that have information for patients as well. So I would say the first one I would go to would be alz.org, but the others could be helpful as well. We've been talking about dementia with Dr. Richard Caselli, a Mayo Clinic neurologist and researcher. Richard, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Well, it's certainly been my pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.